This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge and it's great to be with you this week because what we have coming up is a conversation that I think is very timely in all sorts of ways. It's a conversation about stuff, the things we own, the things we want to own but don't have, the things we do have but don't need, and the ways in which our obsession with stuff shapes so many facets of our existence, from all those little everyday decisions around what to keep and what to get rid of, all the way up to big picture issues like the way our ceaseless production and consumption of stuff is cooking the planet and filling the oceans with microplastics. Because it is an obsession. We are obsessed with material technology. The stuff that we own shapes our identities. And as we're going to be hearing, even anthropologists have a way of looking back at past civilizations and judging their progress according to how much stuff they produced or didn't produce. But it doesn't need to be like this. There are ways of looking at human culture through lenses other than that of material technology. And my guest this week has been doing just that. His name is Josh Burson. He's an anthropologist and philosopher at the Bergruen Institute in Berlin, although, as we'll be hearing, he bounces around all over the world. And he's the author of one of the more fascinating books that I've had the pleasure of reading in recent weeks. It's titled The Human Scaffold, How Not to Design Your Way Out of the Climate Crisis. And it's a wonderfully wide-ranging book about a lot of different things, but at its heart is the argument that we need to rethink the role of physical stuff in our history and our future. In particular, we need to reframe politics and culture in a way that decenters material technology. So there's a lot to talk about there. Josh, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone, and let's get into this by talking about the title of your book, The Human Scaffold. What does that refer to? The Human Scaffold can refer to a number of things. At the most basic level, it refers to a concept in the philosophy of biology of scaffolding or how one, how a set of artifacts or behaviors serves as a, uh, as in both a, a support and a constraint for the develop, the elaboration of some further apparatus of behaviors, uh, artifacts, technology, culture. And it, this concept did not originate with me. It's been developed over the past 40 years by a number of scholars, among them Bill Wimsatt and Kim Sterling. But I felt it had not been made salient in the anthropological discussion about how culture unfolds over long periods of time. And I, as I, the writing of the book went on, I came to see that scaffolding stood in tension with another image schema or guiding metaphor, if you will, for behavioral evolution, which is the, the evolutionary landscape. So in giving the book the title, The Human Scaffold, I wanted to signal that I saw scaffolding as a, as an underappreciated way of, of reasoning about how our strategies of getting by change over time. Well, let's talk about some of that evolution because I mean, basically you're arguing in the book that we, we need to rethink the role of material technology, the role of physical stuff in our, our lives and our, our civilization. And, and this is partly, I guess, for the sake of a future where we might be able to adapt to the demands of climate change and maybe begin to repair the damage that we've done in our endless production of stuff. But you're also looking back through history, and, and you say in the book that if we look at the deep history of human adaptation to climate change, we see material technology playing a subsidiary role. Where do we see that? Can, we give, can you give me a historical example, and, and subsidiary to what exactly? Right. So 
My point is not to to argue that material technology has never played a role in shaping human behavior or in serving as a, as a scaffold, but rather to show how the material things that are most salient to us when we think about the, the stuff we need to, to get by in the world always fit into a, a behavioral schema. And in many cases, the material things themselves have occupied, as you've said, a, a subsidiary role or, or an insignificant role. They, they weren't things that were that were curated highly or, or kept over time. The example that that I use in the in the first third of the book, and I, I turn to it in part because it's become a very prominent case in the anthropological literature, is that of Tasmania, starting in the late Pleistocene era and running up in through the the Holocene. Uh, up to about the time of sustained contact with the European colonizers, say at the turn of the 19th century. Because one of the recurring tropes of the, the anthropological literature on the driving factors in cultural change or in, in, in the way that culture mediates human adaptation to the environment over the past, say, 15, 20 years, has been this uh, series of observations first made in anthropological digs on the northern coast of Tasmania many years ago by the archaeologist uh, Rhys Jones, that in Tasmania you see certain things that, that seem to defy explanation. Uh, if you look at the archaeological record, you see things like thinned fish or scaled fish dropping out of the archaeological record um, sometime in the first third of the Holocene. You see the, the signs of, of the use of fitted clothing dropping out. And for Jones and for, for a number of other investigators who came after him, this signified a, a as Jones put it, a, a dimming of the spark of, of human ingenuity. And so about 15, 20 years ago, there was a, a burst of interest in the community and interested in, in looking at the, at how human a complexity of human society develops over time in the explanatory value of demographic factors, in other words, population density and so on. And this led to a certain body of speculation that it was the isolation of Tasmania uh, following the flooding of the vast sill early in the Holocene that led to this, uh, this attenuation of its material product. But there's a, an alternate line of explanation, which has not gotten as much press, which is that it's not so much that Tasmanian culture devolved or got stuck in some kind of maladaptive cul-de-sac, but that it simply became archaeologically illegible because it relied less on material things or certainly on material things that, that can survive the rigors of archaeological deposition over a period of 10,000 years. And so this has become a, a focal controversy in the literature. And I, I wanted to reinvestigate it because there hadn't been any effort to bring a detailed geographic history, climate history, say, let alone a, a detailed archaeological history, two discussions of this form. And I, I wanted at the same time to articulate that discussion to conversations in the anthropology of learning that have also received very, very short shift, you know, in terms of what, what guides children's learning? When, um, is it really the imitation of more skilled models making stuff that is paramount as as had been described in the literature, so that that became my first case. But you know, when you when you look around, you start to see that this is a, a ubiquitous feature of human culture. the The technological artifacts that we that are most salient to us are never never operate alone, and we couldn't simply reproduce a culture 
after a, a gap or a hiatus from a, a kit of these artifacts. We, we always, we'd have to understand how they had been embedded in use if I wanted to prioritize the use. So if then, as you're suggesting, we, we tend to overemphasize the role of material technology in, in mm. human adaptation, human innovation, what are we missing when we get that emphasis out of balance? What else is there? I mean, is this where we're getting into what you call inactive artifacts? Yeah, so is, with the term inactive artifact, my, my intent is to, is to draw attention to the, the many properties of, of our behavior that have an artifactual aspect, but where the, the material precipitates of that artifact are either ephemeral or insignificant. So language is a key case. And again, none of this is exactly new. Not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, borrowing here from a number of colleagues and scholars, and in particular, I've been helped in this case by the architectural theorist Bill Hillier, whose uh, configurational theory of cities is, has been a, a strong source of inspiration for me. So as Hillier and a number of other people in, uh, in my own field of linguistic anthropology have, have observed, language is a... There's no doubt that it's an artifact in the sense that it's that it's that it's something that exists. You can point to it as a thing, right? It has a certain boundedness, but and yet the material parts of that artifact, the the gestures, the vocalizations that I'm making now, are transient, right? The artifact abides in our recurring and ongoing inaction of it in a community, and so I wanted to draw attention to the fact that so much of our behavior. It has this quality that it, that it, uh, it has a, a kind of materiality, but the materiality is, it gets at just the contour of it, right? The, the thing itself is what's producing the materiality, the, the, the process, not the, the evanescent traces themselves. Well, let's turn to our modern culture of material technology because we do seem to be, uh, you know, we, we post industrial revolution moderns. Completely enthralled to material technology, to to stuff, and 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 in particular, you know, the way that material technology is tied to identity, it's almost constitutive of individual identity in a sense. Do you see it that way, and do you experience it that way yourself? I absolutely do, David. As you say, the, the material things that we surround ourselves with, that we touch and see and, and taste throughout the day represent a major scaffold for our, for our own identity. You know, they're bound up with our, with our autobiography, with our sense of who we are uh, as individuals and as, and as collectives. There are, you know, the, the obvious ways in which this, this plays out, you know, a particular, a particular shirt or a jacket, you know, will, you might associate with, uh, with different times and places where you wore it, or if it's the, an article of clothing that belonged to a loved one uh, who's now gone. And that's a pretty straightforward case of how stuff becomes implicated in our personhood. But I, I feel as if this is a much more abiding phenomenon and one that, that we haven't really come to grips with. You know, it, I was giving a seminar last month to a, a community of non-specialists, just a, um, constituted from a, a newsletter I subscribed to. And we were, we were reading a paper by the anthropologist Irving Hallowell, published in 1960, on how the, the Ojibwe or the Anishinaabe of northern Ottawa understand personhood. And this was, this was a, a landmark paper. This is, this is the paper that introduced the term other than human persons into the literature. 
And uh, 1.1 participant in the seminar said it's as if Hallowell has, has given us a, a scaffold to stand on, to look into the window at the Anishinaabe life world. But we, we can't climb in, you know, because we, it's so difficult for us not to be skeptical of the idea, say that, that stones or meteorological phenomena could, could be uh, persons the way you and I are. And then so we, we talked about various strategies of, of bridging this, this, uh, this gap, this hermeneutic gap. And the thing, the one that, that more people propose than any other was clothing. You know, that, that we, we, that some of us talk to our clothing or we enter a dialogic relationship with our clothing. So it's not that, that just that our, our person who is constituted by the things that, that, uh, that surround us, and especially those that come into intimate contact with their bodies, such as clothing. But that they become kind of partners in our understanding of, of the world, you know. So I, I feel this is a this is we we don't really have a language in our own hermeneutics for 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 making sense of this, you know. And, and we would do well to develop. But I, I'm interested in, in in about your own relationship with with mm. with things <laughs> with with stuff because your your ideal your your practice, I guess, is that of living in a way that you describe as epiphytic and an epiphyte being one of those plants that grows on the surface of, of another plant. Right. So you're, you're trying to minimize the role that stuff plays in your life. I, I'm, I'm assuming you don't have a lot of it. Well, you know, this, it, it, this is so funny because I, the funny thing is that much as I take great comfort in being in new places, especially when I'm writing, I find it very productive to be in a place where I, where none of the, the cooking equipment say is mine. Right. At the same time, I'm, I'm very much a, a homebody. I want nothing, nothing so much as to have a small place, you know, a, a hut, right? A, a, a hermitage where, where I can hold up for half the year, eight, nine months of the year and just be at home. So in that sense, yes, I've, I've, I've learned to, to accommodate myself to the fact that I've moved around quite a bit. And at the same time, I, I go through periods when, when I'm just, just so frustrated with, with some of the, the tedious parts of that way of living that kind of in, in, in reaction, rebellion against it, I find myself drawn to, to acquiring things. I do have, I would say, relatively little stuff, perhaps not quite as little as I did at the time I wrote the book. And one of the things that, that has happened since is that I've had to, reacquire a lot of the the cold weather clothing that I kind of sloughed off in the course of that year in Los Angeles. We're not reacquire, but a, but a acquire new things to uh, to take that place. And it's and that's forced me, let's say, to to make peace with the idea that 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 ours is a is a stuffful way of life, and that material things can in fact be a, be a source of not just of pleasure but of joy, you know, and and of compassion to the self, and that the, there's nothing. There's nothing intrinsically salacious or or meretricious about that, but that it's it's important nonetheless to be to be mindful, you know, to take care in, in how one in in how one curates one's one's material impedimenta as as with any, with anything else. So I I probably don't have quite as little stuff as I as I as I did when I when I wrote the book, and, um, and I, my my relationship to stuff is is certainly changing, but but I. I do stand by the idea that, that there's there's independent value to be to be sought in pairing back. 
You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and this week I'm talking with Josh Burson, who's a philosopher and anthropologist and the author of an excellent book titled The Human Scaffold, which looks at how we might begin to loosen that relentless grip that material technology has on modern societies. Of course, there are dozens of books and YouTube videos out there about decluttering and how to live in a more minimalist fashion, but they raise their own problematic questions, and that's what we're about to get into. One of the things I'm interested in here is is what you might call the aspirational nature of of stuff. Yes. You know, the, the person I would like to become is partly constructed by the things around me. You know, all those books, I, all those books I haven't read. Um, you know, the, the musical instrument in the corner that I can't play yet. It, it's it's like sometimes our stuff provides a, a scaffold, if you like, over which we can train ourselves to to develop and grow. Do you have that, or, or, or are you doing without that? No, I I, I I certainly have that. I mean, in my case. Uh... One genre of, of example that will probably be obscure to most listeners, but that and my partner will roll her eyes to hear this is, is that of um, language texts. You know, I, <laughs> I, I surround my te- myself with, with texts in, in languages that I'm, that I'm trying to learn or aspire to learn. And, and it's not, it, it's not simply a, a form of aspirational consumption. I mean, I do, I do use them. And even if I, if I don't acquire great proficiency in some of these languages, it, the, the process of working through them does contribute to my work, but there, there is a partly aspirational component. Or you know, when when you decide to get the book, that's one way of of telling oneself one is serious about this this very long, this ten year commitment to say to mastering the language. Um, so that would that would be one thing. But I but even when I when I don't have much staff or much uh, or place for certain things there there's i, I do keep a, a roster say of, of aspirational goods that i might acquire at some point when i had a place to put them you know so for example a very good japanese chef's knife or a nice set of chawan to serve tea and my partner and i got married during the pandemic under dire but also remarkably liberating circumstances and we didn't none of our friends were around at the time so i i saw a friend in new york just a, a few months ago, and a year after Jesse and I had gotten married. And this friend of mine said, oh, I, I have a wedding gift for the two of you that I've been saving the past year. And she brought it out, and it was Nishin, a clay uh, teapot for making Gongfu-style tea. And I was I was really struck by how well she knew me or knew us, right? Because this was just the, the, the perfect thing. So now I've, I've uh, you know, it's a bit delicate, but I've had to, to lug it way across the country now, now that I'm on, on the West Coast, but it has very quickly become something that I use uh, multiple times a day and uh, very much embodies that, that aspirational quality that you allude to, that it, it serves a function of, of helping me live in a way uh, that, that makes me feel perhaps more, more myself. I mean, I guess when you talk about receiving this gift, which you then find yourself lugging all around the country and being very careful <laughs> with it because it's, you know, because it's very delicate. I mean, there can be a sort of millstone around the neck quality to some of these. 
even most treasured objects. And, and, you know, with that in mind, we have this large chunk of the publishing industry these days devoted to getting rid of those kinds of things. And I guess Marie Kondo is, is probably the example that listeners will be um, most familiar with, the, the life-changing magic of tidying up. I think that was, I think the English translation appeared in 2014. You know, huge bestseller. And there have been a lot of decluttering manuals and everyday minimalism YouTube videos in, in its wake. What's your take on this movement and its relationship to your own work? You know, the funny thing is, for me, I'm kind of a clumsy person or physically ill-coordinated. So when I feel compelled to acquire stuff, I tend to prefer soft goods. You know, I, I go with clothing because I know if I get something like a, a teacup or a teapot, it's just a, it's a matter of weeks before it's it's gone. So I'm 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 kind of biding my time, right? This is I I'm already feeling a certain a certain mononoawade for this tiny little teapot because I'm I'm sure at some point it will be smashed. I'll be amazed if it lasts a year, but uh, but but we live in hope. Remarkably, there is already a, a small anthropological literature on decluttering, and I remember reading going through it uh, when I was when I was writing that final chapter of the book, and I was struck by the observation that one investigative reports from from one of her her field respondents who is a professional home organizer and said you know i i really don't like condo's formula of holding each thing up and asking whether it sparks joy because i work with a lot of hoarders and if i asked them to do that they'd say everything sparked there's not there's nothing that's not essential to their lives and so i find myself having with my clients to take the opposite approach, right? To say, what could I do without, you know, or what is, and, and I, I feel as if in my own life, as you say, there is every, every object, every acquisition is at the same time a, a loss, right? A loss of a, of a, of a certain kind of, of lightness. Now that loss may be more than justified. If I get a pair of waterproof shoes and that allows me to, to go hiking in the snow up, up Neff's Canyon in the, the Wasatch Range when I'm in Salt Lake, which is where my partner's from, then that's a, a great game for me. You know, the fact that, that I have to find a way to, to move the shoes around with me is negligible beside the, the ability to be safe and, and, uh, and comfortable and, and, and move around outdoors. But what's remarkable to me is, is how decluttering has become a, a, an object of aspiration unto itself. I don't even know if it's really about getting less stuff, having less stuff. It's about having the right stuff. It's about having the stuff that looks sleek, having the stuff that, that's minimal. For certain people, it becomes about finding an article of clothing that's more versatile, that can take the place of five others. But in, in many cases, I feel as if it's, it's about having the right organizational containers, right? The, the right system of organizational containers, be they color-coded or translucent or, 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 or they exactly the right shape. So there's a funny way in which we very quickly turned the, the idea of purging oneself of, of stuff, purging one's life of stuff in, into a theme of consumer acquisition. This is not a, a, a sickness, if you will, that's distinctive or unique, at least, to capitalism. Uh, one example that I give, and perhaps it's a, it's a cliched one, but inevitably, when, when you write a book, you have to go for some low-hanging fruit. And so the, 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 uh, the 17th century, the Edo era haiku composer Basho, known as Basho, when he finally became established as a poet, when he finally had a following and, and supporters and was able to make, make a secure income, his supporters, his, his students arranged for him to, 
to have some land on the on the south south of Edo and a small hut there. But he found himself dissatisfied when he had this place of his own, and he described this this great lightness he he felt when he took to the road. And in particular, he says, you know, what uh, it's so great not to have pots and pans. But of course, it's not that he no longer needed pots and pans. It's simply that he was now obliged to rely on others to provide those pots and pans. So his, his the lightness he felt, his his decluttering was free riding on other people's uh, maintaining the life of a householder. And so I, this is not to say that, that we can't all climb down a bit in our reliance on stuff. I think we must. But it, it's simply to point out that that decluttering, as it's as it's been got up, certainly in the, in the Anglosphere over the past ten years, maybe uh, not the right approach. Well, Josh, I'd just like to finish up by maybe just gesturing in the direction of something that we don't really have time to get into, but that's the way in which the the kind of consciousness that you're writing about in your book you see as being essential for progress in other domains like politics and social justice. Let's finish with a few thoughts on that. What are you getting at there? My feeling when I when I finished, I did not want this to be a homiletic book. I did not want this book to be preachy or to be saying this is what we should be doing, that we, we need to do the following things to address, to address climate change, the carbon crisis, the crisis of, of, of microplastics in the ocean, um, uh, whatever else. But I did, I had been sort of operating at the, at the fringes of the design sector for a number of years. And I had observed the way that industrial design or product design had transformed itself into the design of, of everything, the design of, uh, of behavior. And I, I felt as if the relaxation in our in our focus on material things as the scaffolds for our, our way of life pointed the way toward a broader relaxation of our efforts to design the future. The, what I'm gesturing toward in those final pages is the is is the idea that maybe what we should be aspiring toward is a a graceful unwinding, right? That that, that I, I don't intend this as a defeatist attitude. But more something in the spirit of the, the patchiness or the, the boro, the, the, the tatteredness of my, my argumentative strategy, my narrative strategy throughout the book. That, that if we, if we could see ourselves, you know, as not as things, not, a, not as, uh, not, not as beings with a, with a defined integrity in time and space, but as, as transient inactions in a field of, of sign making and, and movement that, that precedes and exceeds us, then, then maybe we would be, Less resistant to the uh, to the idea that that at the end of the day, you know, this the inaction that is us will will pass into something else, right? And that that should be our guiding principle in in responding to climate change and other political crises, right? That we should think less about preserving what we are and more about understa- understanding the tendency, the becoming, as it were, that that we're part of, and and nudging, guiding it in a way that that is perhaps less violent, both to our to our, our fellow living things and to, to the principle out of which we come. Well, it's a good point on which to end the conversation, but it's also a good point for starting a whole new conversation, which unfortunately we, uh, we, we can't do here. But I, I will just uh, refer listeners to your book, The Human Scaffold, How Not to Design Your Way Out of a Climate Crisis. It's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Josh Burson, thanks so much for your time. David, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. And you can find Josh Burson online. We'll put a link to his website and publication details of The Human Scaffold on our website. 
That's The Philosopher's Zone. Just head to the Radio National website and you'll find us on the program menu. I'm David Rutledge. Join me next week for a Lunar New Year conversation about Chinese architecture and what it can teach us about Chinese society and Confucian philosophy. It is an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm very excited to be putting it out there. So join me next week. And in the meantime, you can harass me on Twitter at David P. Zone. Bye for now. Thank you.